0: I have double duty this weekend. I need to set up the series, and I also need to tackle the topic of lust. And so we're going to jump right in. Uh, Point number one in your notes is the I don't know problem. We're going to start in Romans chapter 7, so you can kind of get all of that situated. Uh, I'll start by telling you about something that is a common occurrence in my house. Uh, Many of you know I have four kids. Uh, My son is 13, and I have three girls, 11, 9, and 2. My 11-year-old and my 9-year-old share a bedroom. They are close in age, so there is lots of sibling rivalry, lots of arguments, lots of tears, lots of tattling, lots of stomping, lots of that going on in my house. And it is not odd for Erin, the nine-year-old, to come downstairs with tears in her eyes in full-blown tattletale mode, telling me how horrible Courtney is being up in the bedroom. And then I'm placed in the position of being the referee to try to figure out, is she lying? Is she exaggerating? Did this really happen? Right? You know, that beautiful parenting moment. So let's imagine that what Aaron is telling me is true, and Courtney is actually being very mean and very nasty to Aaron. And I look at Courtney and I say, Courtney, why are you being so mean and nasty to your sister? To which Courtney responds, I don't know. (laughs) Have you ever heard this answer? This is not just my girls. I'll pick on my son here for a second. My son, I can watch him do his homework at night, and I see that he's done his homework. I say that his homework actually physically gets in his backpack. I can actually verify that his backpack physically goes to school with him, but then when I look online to see the assignment grades, he gets a zero because he hasn't turned it in. So I look at my son, Michael, and I say, Michael, if you did the assignment and you brought it to school, why didn't you get it into your teacher's hands? To which Michael responds, I don't know. <laughs> and This isn't just a kid problem. Let me pick on myself for a second. Uh, about a year ago... I had decided that my family, I thought, was doing a good job with being reactively generous, which, which just goes to mean that I just thought when a need presented itself, that my family does a good job responding to the need. What I didn't think we were doing a good job of was being proactively generous, looking to find ways that we could serve people less fortunate than ourselves on purpose without the need coming to us. And so... We decided that as a family, and this was a year ago, that we were going to do Canning Hunger, which is something we promote around here at Christ Community Church, which is very simple. You hang door hangers on your neighbor's door saying on a certain day, at a certain time, you're going to come by and collect food for a local food pantry or homeless shelter. You go by, you collect the food, you get to meet your neighbors better, you have good conversations. Everything about it is good. It's not super difficult, but a year later, we have still not done it. We have had multiple conversations about it, but we have still not gotten around to doing this good thing that we know we ought to be doing. And you could ask me, Eric, it's been a year. Why haven't you gotten around to doing that? And I could talk to you about how invested I am in ministry and how busy my life is and four children and this and that and that. But you, if you dug through that and said, really, why haven't you done it? I guess my only response would be, I don't know. We, we could dial this out a little bit more. If you're young, think about the school you go to. Or if you're in the workforce, think about where you work and let me ask you this question. Is your school or your workplace everything that it ought to be? People treating each other well? How's the honesty and integrity quotient at the place you go to school or the place you work? Everyone going out of their way to be nice and kind and helpful and I think most of us would say, I wish my school was fundamentally different. And I'm talking about how humans are treating humans. And at my workplace, I wish things were fundamentally different. And I'm talking about the way humans are treating humans. And if the vast majority of us would raise our hand and say, I wish things were different. right? So we have a majority vote. We would like to see things be different. The question becomes, why aren't things different? Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul is digging into this I don't know problem a little bit, and I just want you to notice the frustration in the tone of this whole contemplation. Uh, Let's take a look. Romans chapter 7 says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep doing. Are you feeling the frustration of what he is communicating here? This is the frustration of humanity. This is the big I don't know problem. Why do I find myself dragging my feet towards the, things, the good things I know I ought to be doing and so easily sliding towards the evil that I don't want to participate in? Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Well, here comes the answer. Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Here is Paul addressing this big I don't know problem of humanity, recognizing that all of the problems out there all of the problems in your schools, all of the problems in your workplace, all of the problems in our society, all of the problems in the world, they're not just an out there problem. Those problems are out there because the problem is in here. Our fundamental problem as human beings is sin. That sinful nature that controls our lives. And it is Jesus Christ, through the provision of the cross, that breaks us free from the power of our sinful nature. That is where this conversation needs to start as we explore the seven deadly sins. Otherwise, as we look through these seven topics, it can almost start to feel like what we're suggesting is clean yourself up, be a better person so that you can make yourself presentable to God, and that is not where we're going with this. The reality of this conversation is that sin is powerful, and it has broken this world. It has broken us. It's corruptive. It's pervasive. It's nasty. It's ugly. It's destructive. It's deadly. We know it, but we like to talk less about it. And the only thing that sets us free from the domination of sin is the power of the cross. What is provided for us through the cross of Jesus Christ. It starts there. That's why it's called gospel, good news. It all starts there. But then, once we respond appropriately to Jesus, recognize who he is, what he has done on our behalf... God gives us his spirit, he puts his spirit inside of us, and we engage in this lifelong journey of cooperating with God's work in our lives to become less like the corrupted people that we've become because of sin, and more like the people he created us to be in the first place before sin screwed everything up. That process is called sanctification, becoming less like the corrupted versions of ourselves, less like the world, and more like Jesus That process is called sanctification, and that is what this exploration of the seven deadly sins is about. It's not about trying to earn favor with God or clean ourselves up enough so that God will love us. God already loves you. God has already demonstrated that by providing Jesus Christ to come to set us free from the domination of our sinful nature. That question need not be asked. God loves us. He's demonstrated it a thousand times over. But this process of sanctification, cooperating with the Spirit of God in our lives, is something that you and I must engage in intentionally. So as we explore these seven deadly sins, that's what it's all about. It says it this way in one of the books that we've been reading to get ready for this series. It says, think of church as lifelong learning in how to be a sinner. The gospel story that we are forgiven, being redeemed sinners is the means whereby we are able to be honest about the reality, the complexity, and the perversity of our sin. Where we step back and we say, sin is nasty. It's not just minor character flaws. It's not just small misdoings here and there. It's powerful stuff. And it is more pervasive, more ugly, more complex than we ever want to give it credit for. And here's the problem. When we make small of sin, we make small Jesus and the cross. We can never really fully appreciate, embrace, or even explore or contemplate how amazing grace is, how amazing Jesus is, how amazing the cross is, forgiveness, the cleansing that comes, the power for victorious living, what it really means that God has given us his spirit to live a different kind of life. We can never really fully appreciate those things if we can to make small of sin, if we continue to talk about it in cheap and trivial ways. But when we recognize how broken and corrupt not just this world is, but we can be, and quite honestly are, now we're starting to make some progress. And that's what this series is all about. So the, the The question would be, what if if we had a diagnostic tool? What if if we had something that would help us look at ourselves for who we really are? Really look at sin for what it is. What what if we had a, a way to get a different perspective, a different angle on things? What if we had that kind of diagnostic tool? Well, welcome to the seven deadly sins. Because that's exactly what this list is meant to be. You will not, I can't give you a book and chapter and verse to show you where the list of the seven deadly sins appears in your Bible that the list as it is constructed does not exist in your bible all of, each of the seven are scriptural concepts certainly things that are addressed in our bible the list itself was created by christian men who put some thought to this and started really asking the questions about what is the struggle of humanity? What are the things that trip us up? What are the things that are destroy us? What are the things that are deadly? What, what are these things? How do they become a part of our life? How do we fight against them? So it, the seven deadly sins, the list, is actually a diagnostic tool to take an honest look at ourselves so that we can cooperate more fully with God's work of sanctification in our lives. That's what this list is. It's an honest look. So, as we go through this series, we're going to be very honest. Not going to tiptoe through the tulips, not going to make light of things. And so, I just want to point out, when we plan the weekend worship services at all four of our campuses, it's designed for sixth graders and above, middle school students and older. So, if you have a fifth grader or younger with you during the Seven Deadly Sins series, I just want to remind you that Kids World is a great place for children. Because we have no desire to skate over these topics. That'd be an exercise in futility. But to really look at it honestly, with vulnerability, so that we can cooperate more fully with God's Spirit's work in our life is is our goal. So you have the seven deadly sins. Uh, Another book that we've been using to get ready for this series says it this way. From the earliest days of Christianity... Lists were written naming the manifestations of this power, meaning the power of sin. These lists were not assembled for curiosity's sake. The writers were doing the work of physicians, diagnosing the disease that is killing us. So these lists were generated, they've been tweaked, they've been changed. People have added things to the list, removed things from the list. Um, Here are three books that we have been reading through to prepare. Glittering Vices in the Middle has a great history of the origin of the list of the seven deadly sins, how it has been utilized, and how it has actually been changed and tweaked throughout church history. Those other two books are really good books on the topic. So um, just want to make you aware, I was late in telling our resource bookstore that I would be putting these up on the screen. It was a holiday week, so they've ordered them, but they're not in yet. So if you go immediately after service, they won't be at our resource center. That is completely my fault. They will be in there next weekend. All right, let's lay down a little bit of groundwork here as we're talking about the list of the seven deadly sins so as we go through the whole series, we're kind of playing from the same playbook. When the, the list of the seven deadly sins is a conversation in vices and virtues, which is not something we talk about a lot as Americans. So here is the difference between sins and vices. Vices are character traits developed over a period of time through repetitive choices. So if you make the same sinful choice over and over and over and over again, eventually that becomes a vice of yours, which means it's become one of your character traits, which means now it's no longer a choice you are making in as much as you've done it so frequently that it has become your default mode of operation. It has become a part of who you are. A vice. Uh, I'm a visual thinker. Think of it this way. You You ever go sledding after a fresh snow, so you go to the top of the hill and there's no sledding track yet. The first person that goes has a pretty tough go of it. They have to actually create the track, right? And so they get on their sled. Let's say they're sitting on one of those disc sleds, and they go down, and normally they're just kind of dragging themselves down the hill because they are creating the track. They're making a very intentional choice, and it actually requires some effort for them to do it. The next person that goes has a little bit of an easier go of it, and the next person an easier go of it, and the next person an easier go. The same track, over and over and over again, eventually what happens is that becomes a really good track. I have have been the person to, to trailblaze the track. I have also been the person at the top of the hill who has tripped and fallen on my sled, and next thing I know, I'm going down the track even though I didn't want to be. Vices are that way. What started off as an intentional choice becomes default. It becomes easy, and even if you don't ever want to go down that track again, you keep, yourself go, keep finding yourself going down the same track over and over and over again. Which makes the work of breaking free from that track important and difficult and necessary. It takes an intentional effort to break free from those tracks. You ever been halfway down a sledding track and tried to get off that track? It takes a very intentional effort. And these are some of the things that we want to try to accomplish as we go through this series. Here's the next thought. Virtues are the opposite of vices. So virtues are excellences of character, habits or dispositions, which is like attitudes, that help us live well as human beings. Vices are destructive and corruptive. Virtues are helpful and life-giving. And so one of the things we're going to suggest throughout this series is the cure to any vice is actually the pursuit of its opposite virtue. And we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. Here's the last thought here as we set up this series. These are called the seven deadly sins. They've also been referred to as the capital vices. A helpful way to think about them is as source sins. Uh, In other words... All of the destructive behaviors of our lives, all of the things that we wish didn't define us as much, all of the things we find ourselves doing that we wish we didn't find ourselves doing, all of those things have their source in something. And the suggestion of the list of the seven deadly sins is that these are the sources. These these are the wells from which everything else comes. Uh, A few years ago, I was having significant pain in the outside of my right knee. So I went to the doctor because I was thinking, oh no, am I going to be the dad that blows out his knee playing wiffle ball in the backyard? I didn't want to be that guy. So I go to the doctor. He sends me to a physical therapist so they could figure out what is going on. Um, And the physical therapist runs me through a bunch of tests and exercises and they determined that I don't have a knee problem. My problem was actually poor flexibility and weak hips. So I look at the physical therapist and I say, "So you're telling me That my knee right here hurts because of my hips. Yes. So I don't have a knee problem. No. I have a hip problem. Yes. So my hip problem is manifesting itself in my knee. Yes. Okay. I spent the next half a year doing exercises that had everything to do with flexibility and strengthening my hips. Guess what? The knee pain went away. Here's why I share this. There are manifestations in our lives of vices of the seven deadly sins. And you're trying, you think that what is manifesting itself is actually the problem, but the problem is actually much deeper and darker and more serious than we ever want to imagine. And if we're only dealing with the knee, we never really get to the source of the problem. And so what we want to do throughout this series is get to the source of the problem. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be fun, but it certainly is worth it. If we want to make an honest run at cooperating with God in the process of sanctification, it's going to take the best we've got. And that's what we want to encourage you to do throughout this summer series. If I get a little bit more real about it than just talking about pain in my knee, another example would be the fact that I yell at my kids too much. And if you lived in my house, you would say, you know, Eric, I think you yell at your kids too much. And I would say, yeah, I'm aware of that fact. But I don't think I have a yelling problem. I could reduce it to that. I could, I could give you all kinds of excuses. I could say, look, I grew up on the East Coast in an Italian family, and the way that we communicate is that we raise our voices as loud as we can, and if someone escalates, I escalate too, because gosh darn it, I'm winning this argument. I could reduce it to that and explain it away as I'm an East Coast Italian. Or... I could get to the source of it and say, no, the truth is I have an anger problem. The truth is, when I'm yelling at my kids, I'm angry. And it can be coming from a very bad place. So if I, just, if I just treat it as a yelling problem, I'm not really treating the source issue. I have to get at what is inside of me that is coming out of my mouth in such a horrible way, directed at the kids that I love. What is going on with that? You know, that even affects my preaching sometimes. I, I am fully aware that sometimes when I'm preaching and even in my day-to-day conversations, that stuff comes out of me in a way that I don't want it to come out. It comes out harsh or it has an edge to it. You know, even Pastor Jim, we're always evaluating each other's preaching, trying to help each other become better preachers. And every once in a while, Pastor Jim or Jameson will be like, Ferris, I'll just tone it down a little bit. Yeah. And so I'm having this conversation with Pastor Jim one day. I was in his office. And I said, you know, I think I know why I come across as angry sometimes when I preach. And he says, yeah, why? I said, because I am. (laughs) And He laughs like you did. On some level, it's funny. On another level, it's not. You know, I love young people, middle school students, high school students, college students. I've given my life to working with them. And when I see what they struggle with and the pain of their life, the truth is, that the vast majority of it is directly related to the sin issues of the adults in their lives. That's not to say they're completely innocent and they're not doing stupid things that brings pain into their own lives. But then I come and I preach on a weekend and I see a sea of adults that in my estimation are negatively affecting young people and it makes me angry. And it can come out of me in bad ways. It can be utilized in good ways or it can come out of me in negative ways. But if I'm going to be honest about the source of it and not just say, it's not just a communication issue. It's not just I need to go take more public speaking classes to take the edge off. What takes the edge off is to deal with the source of what is creating it in the first place. So the first one we're going to deal with in this series is lust. Now, here is is the good thing about lust, if there is a good thing about lust. I don't think I have to do a lot of work to convince any of us how corruptive it could be. Some of the other ones I'm not sure we really think are deadly. This one I think we're pretty convinced it is because we have lots of experience with how horribly painful, destructive, and nasty misusing our sexuality can be. So we'll, we'll dive right into this. Let's start with this, this laying a few things here down about lust. First of all, sexual desire is healthy. We need to start here. We need to start with the reality that the sexual relationship between a man and a woman is a God-given, beautiful, amazing thing created by God. It is a healthy thing. I think sometimes when we talk about it in weird ways, you know, when we think about how we talk about sex and sexual relationships in our society, I think some people would say, We've just made, we just make too, too big a deal about sex. It's just everywhere. I would contend that the exact opposite is true. I don't think we make too big a deal of sex. I think we make too light of it. I think we reduce it to something that it's not. We make it a trivial, unimportant matter. And then as soon as we make it trivial and unimportant in our own minds and our own hearts, it gives us enough freedom to to handle our sexuality however we want to handle it. I, I don't think that we have elevated sex too high. I think we've reduced it too low. Let me try try to establish this point a little further. If I look through Scripture, there are two primary reasons that the sexual relationship exists. One is relationship between a man and a woman. The sexual relationship is meant to bring intimacy, emotionally, spiritually, physically. It is a connector between a man and a woman. It's all about a committed love relationship. Love, relationship. The other main purpose for sex is kids, procreation. So you have love and you have life. Human relationship and human life. Are these trivial things? I don't think they are. I think they're at the core of who we are as people. And the problem is we've taken the sexual relationship which is meant to be about love and life, and we have reduced it into a discussion about the satisfaction of our own pleasure. We have decided that sex is about feeling good, the pursuit of pleasure, instead of recognizing how amazing it can be when it comes to human relationship and human life. We have reduced it, perverted it, corrupted it, made it a small thing when it is actually a big thing. And when we make it a small thing, then lust starts to enter in, where it all just becomes about the gratification of my longings for pleasure. That's what lust is. Here is the problem with lust at its core. When you remove love and life from the equation of sexuality, when you do that and you reduce it to just pleasure... You're perverting it to your own detriment. And think about how this manifests itself. Masturbation, pornography, adultery, promiscuity, both homosexual and heterosexual, date rape, molestation. Even if you just think about the kinds of articles that are in magazines when you're checking out from the grocery store, you look at the cover. Is it ever five ways to have a better love relationship with your spouse? No, it's always five ways to a better orgasm or six ways to get someone to satisfy you better. We have reduced it to such triviality, to such a small thing, when it is no small thing. Now, all of those things I just listed, masturbation, pornography, adultery, promiscuity, rape, molestation, everything in the magazine articles, all of that stuff, what have all of those things have in common? I can identify two. Number one is selfishness. All of those things are about the gratification of my own longing for pleasure. The second thing they have in common is that they never truly satisfy the real and healthy human sexual longing. It's the pursuit of a counterfeit to satisfy what is a real and healthy longing. And since those things don't ever fully satisfy things continue to intensify in the elusive search for what only a proper pursuit of sexual relationship will deliver. And it lives in the dark, right? Pornography doesn't satisfy, so you need more and more and more and more. And all of, all of these lustful manifestations are the same way. Whether it's promiscuity, or pornography, or masturbation, or adultery, it never fully satisfies because it is a cheap counterfeit. It is a reduction of what the real human sexual relationship is meant to be. And because it never truly satisfies, we keep pursuing it more and more and more and more and more and more and more, and, more and, more and, more, and then it owns us. And then we live in the dark. And it brings guilt and shame into our lives. And so we keep it in the dark more because we never want to bring it out because it's embarrassing, and now we're stuck. And the devil's got his thumb on us, and our lives are being destroyed, all because we went down that dang snow track way too many times, and now we just can't stop going down it. So what is the cure for that? In Matthew chapter 5, let's turn there. In a basic way, we could say Matthew chapter 5... It's a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, and we could say the Sermon on the Mount is like Jesus' manifesto for kingdom living. In other words, Jesus came the first time to inaugurate God's kingdom, God's rule and reign in our lives. Jesus will come again a second time and bring that kingdom in its fullness, where sin and temptation and all death and destruction and pain, all of that will be gone. But we don't live in that perfect kingdom yet, but he has brought the kingdom he has inaugurated it, and so we get a taste of it. And so the question becomes, how do, we, how do we engage in kingdom living? How do we live God-led lives? How do we live lives of freedom with God in, in charge? And this is part of that conversation. So let's, let's take a look. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let me just draw two things out of this. Uh, The first is that lust is not an action. Here's what I mean by this. Take a look at this and let's, let's look where it starts and where it lives. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lust starts and lives in our minds and in our hearts. When we act on it, it becomes sexual immorality. But lust, as a temptation, as a sin, is actually here and here. It's your imagination. It's the way you think about things. It's the way you play things out in your mind. It starts here. You play out a scenario in your head. Then, then it, it's in your heart. It kicks into like your will. So you're thinking about a certain scenario. Now it's become a part of your decision making process where you're determined to make your imagination movie play out. And so it's in your heart. Lust all lives north of your belt before it ever becomes sexual immorality. Jesus is trying to get at the core of this. Instead of just looking at us and saying, stop it, stop being sexually immoral. He's helping us here by pointing out that lust is mind and heart before it's ever sexual immorality. And that's where you've got to wage the war. You've got to wage the war in your mind and in your heart. The second thing I want to draw out of this is the word hell. Jesus makes the point, listen, it's better for you. If you're looking and it's causing you to lust, gouge out your eye. If you need to cut off your hand, you do whatever you need to do so that you don't end up in hell. Now, we immediately, when we think hell, we immediately go to the conception of afterlife, heaven and hell, right? We immediately go there. That word hell in, in this passage is actually Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A, which is actually a place in Israel, about south, southwest of Jerusalem, there is, they call it a valley, it's like a ravine, it's a small valley. In the time of the monarchs, when the kings were ruling Israel, that was a place where a lot of idol worship was going on, which involved child sacrifice. Kids were being slaughtered there to worship false gods. Not far after that, Joel and Jeremiah, two of Israel's prophets, declare that that is going to be the place where God judges his people. So this place does not have a lot of Goodness attached to it. Children being slaughtered to worship false gods. God's judgment has been declared to fall there on God's people. If you dial history forward, uh, in a certain period of Israel's history, that's where they would burn the bodies of their enemies. And then some would say it even became a trash dump at a certain point. So that word is loaded with that kind of imagery, which why then it becomes useful in talking about the afterlife and God's judgment, death, destruction. But it all starts there as a physical place. So if you think about it this way, it's, a, it's worship of false gods, it's God's judgment, it's death, it's trash. And Jesus is saying to us, listen, it is better for you to do whatever you have to do to cut off lust influence in your life so that you can avoid the judgment and the death and the destruction and the trash that is certainly awaiting you if you don't do something about it. Better better to make some kind of definitive decisions now that might be painful in the short run so that you can avoid the death and destruction and the garbage that's coming your way if you don't stop going down this road. I would simply say it this way. If you've never done anything definitive to win the war against lust, you're likely losing. If I asked you right now, what kind of choices have you made in your life to make sure that lust does not take root and take you to places you don't ever want it to take you. Filters on your phone, computers in public places, accountability partners, like something. There's got to be something that you've done definitively. And if you haven't, I think you're just in a, in a world of trouble at some point. I, I, I do not watch movies anymore after my wife goes to bed. You say, wow, you're a pastor and you can't even watch a movie once your wife goes to bed? Yeah, I'm a pastor. I'm also human. And I think one of, the, one of the problems when we're talking about this is that we just don't talk about it, really. It's temptation. Temptation isn't necessarily bad. It's what you do with temptation. Jesus was tempted and he did not sin. It's not the temptation that is shameful and guilt-ridden. It's what you do with that temptation. And I'm smart enough to know that I need people around me to keep me on the straight and narrow. And I think we all do. So here are a few helpful tips. Some stops and goes when it comes to dealing with lust. Here are some stops. Stop thinking that sexual desire is unhealthy. It's not unhealthy. Sexual desire is not an unhealthy thing. It's a human thing. It's created by God. It's meant for love and life. It only becomes unhealthy when we corrupt it and we make it not about love and life. That's when it becomes unhealthy. But sexual desire is not an unhealthy thing. I just don't think we always talk about it in helpful ways, especially for young people. With young people, we're always like, it's bad, it's dirty, don't do it, stay away. It's bad, it's dirty, don't do it, stay away. And on their wedding day, we're like, anything goes, (laughs) woohoo! Well, for crying out loud, which one is it? Let's just talk about it one way. It's beautiful, it's powerful. And it can be perverted and corrupted, which makes it deadly. But it is certainly powerful and beautiful. And I think that's how we need to talk about it. The second stop is this. Stop living in the dark. Stop living in the dark. For some of us, probably a lot of us, the greatest shame of our lives, the greatest guilt of our lives, the things that we definitively wish were different about our lives are still living in the dark because there's so much shame attached to it that we're embarrassed to bring it into the light to tell somebody about it meanwhile there's something inside of us that knows that the only thing that's really going to set us free from it is when we get up enough courage to bring it into the light and tell somebody about it to get help but the enemy keeps us in the dark because when he's got us in the dark he can keep owning us and our sinful nature wants to keep us there Stop living in the dark. Confession. 1 John chapter 1. This is a conversation about living in the darkness or living in the light. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Confession is about honesty. Calling things what they are. You know what my guess is? If you're stuck in the dark and you're afraid to tell somebody you love and trust about your struggle because you're worried if they're going to judge you or how embarrassed you're going to be. Here's what my guess is. If you find someone you really love and trust and you share that with them, you know what you're going to find? Grace and freedom and a better relationship with that friend. You're going to find all the things that you desire. I don't think you're going to find the things you're afraid of. But if it keeps living in the dark, it will continue to own you. You gotta bring it out into the light. You gotta find someone you love and trust and respect, and you just go to them and you say, Look, here's what I struggle with. I've even gone down this track one too many times, and it has become way too easy for me to continue down this track, and I don't wanna go this way anymore. And that's when, that's when you really start to find the freedom and the joy and the victory over this stuff. Next one is stop merely gritting your teeth. Human willpower is not enough. This time I'm really determined, God. This time I'm really not going to do it anymore. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. You know how I know that? Because you've already prayed that prayer a thousand times. I'm really sorry, God. This time I mean it. I'm not going to do it anymore. Human willpower is not enough. I'll say it this way. You, need, you may need a counselor and you definitely need the counselor. A counselor would be a Christian counselor that will help you process these things. We have lots of them at the church. You call the caring department, they'll hook you up with one. But the counselor is the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was getting ready to ascend back to heaven after his first visit to this earth, he looked at his followers and he said, It's better for you if I go, because when I go, I'm going to send you the counselor. Understanding the role of the person of the Holy Spirit in your life is fundamental to living a victorious life, to living the Christian life the way it's meant to be lived. Here's a book to help you to that end. Francis Chan's Forgotten God, if you want to understand more about what it means to know the role of the person of the Holy Spirit in your life, to cooperate with God in the sanctification process, to become more like the person God has created you to be, that would be a fantastic book, to develop a relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. Last stop here is this. Stop setting yourself up for failure. We have this crazy habit of getting as close to lust as we can possibly get and then be frustrated with ourselves when we're not strong enough to resist the temptation that is sitting right there when we go there. So we get as close to it as we possibly can, then we're not strong enough to endure the temptation. That's a silly thing to do. But we find ourselves doing it all the time. Well, here is the very brilliant counsel from Scripture on this. You ready? Flee! run away, go far, far away, don't go anywhere near it, stop playing with it, stop treating, like, treating it like it is not powerful, because it is, and chances are, if you keep playing with it, you are going to get burned, so run away, flee from it, stay far away, do whatever you can, put checks in place, tell people your struggles, do what, put filters on your phones, put your computer in a public place, I love Google, I am a heavy Google user. I love Google so much that my Facebook profile picture is a droid. Google created incognito web browsing where nobody can track what you're doing on the web. Gee, I wonder why anybody would want to use that. Snapchat, text messages that disappear in six seconds on your kids' phones. Gee, I wonder why anybody would use that. I can only think of a few reasons why I would want a text message to disappear in six seconds. All of them have to do with the fact that I wouldn't want anyone I love and respect to see what I just sent to somebody. I ask my son at least once a month if he's seen porn, not because I think he's looking for it, but because I'm convinced that he, because kids are connected all the time now, it's going to be staring them in the face. Parents, we've got to pull our heads out of the sand on this one. This is an issue. Your kids aren't so good that it's not going to affect them. I'm telling you, as a pastor, I ask my 13-year-old son at least once a month how he has interacted with pornography. Because this is the world we live in. And you've got to deal with it. If you're not doing anything to deal with it, you're losing. Here are some goes. Because just saying don't do things is not sufficient, don't think of a pink elephant. Don't think of a pink elephant holding an umbrella. Don't think of a dancing pink elephant, right? The more you try to not think about it, the more you think about it. So if you, if you go throughout your life just trying to not engage in the vices, your life is going to be dominated by thinking about the very things that you don't want to be a part of your life. So it's not the stops that necessarily bring you all the victory. To avoid the vices, you know what you do? You pursue the virtue. You pursue its opposite virtue. By definition, if you're going this way, you're not going this way. So if I'm pursuing the virtue, I'm saying no to lust. So if I want to say no to lust, I say yes to, here's an old-fashioned word, chastity. Chastity is the virtue that is opposite of lust. Chastity is simply handling my sexuality in a way that God created it to be handled. So here are a few goes. Pursue love. Pursue love. Not just one single byproduct of love, which is pleasure, but pursue love. The second one would be this, pursue people. Man, pursue people. Listen, young people, old people, men, women, husbands, wives. Don't just pursue sexual pleasure. That's cheapening it. It's trivializing it. Pursue the person. Pursue a love relationship with somebody. Pursue a romantic relationship with somebody, a powerful relationship with somebody. Pursue that. Read through Song of Songs in your Bible. And just get a sense of how powerful that sexual romantic relationship is. And then pursue the person, not just a byproduct of a sexual relationship. Husbands, stop wishing your wives had more sex with you and stop, start pursuing them. Wives, same with your husbands. And it's not ever going to be perfect, but pursue people, not pleasure. And then the last one is this. Pursue the real thing, not the counterfeit. What you see in movies is counterfeit, it's cheap, it's fake, it's not real. Pursue the real thing. A lasting, romantic, powerful love relationship with another person. If chastity is not a rule book of don'ts, then what is it? Here's what I'd say it is. It's a pro-love lifestyle. And therefore, it's a virtue someone needs, whether you're single, married, old, or young, to channel and control our sexual desire is to empower ourselves to love. When we reduce sexuality to lust, to pleasure, we become incapable of love. And guess what? My Bible tells me that they'll know we are Christians by our love our ability to love really well. And lust cuts that off at the knees. I'm going to pray, and when I say amen, the campus pastors at the regional campuses will lead all of you in worship and communion, and I'll do the same here for us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for breaking the power of sin in our lives, for revealing yourself to us, for telling us the truth, And we thank you for what we're about to celebrate through communion. That before we even knew we we had a need, you came to meet us at the point of our need. We thank you and we love you. Amen.